Did you ever think you were made it? I feel I'm so close I could take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to haters. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm Patrick Bedevi, host of ITM, and today we're sitting down with Richard Wolf, very, very prominent uh, professor, Marxist professor, who believes in socialism, devout socialist, love socialist, hates capitalism, and this one got very heated. Richard, thanks for being a guest on Valuetainment. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So, Richard, I mean, the short name for Richard is Rich. Why does Rich hate rich people? What is it with you, Rich? I'm trying to figure you out. Actually, I don't hate rich people. Some of my best friends are rich people. If you know, if you go to Harvard and Yale, you're surrounded by rich people. Even if I didn't want to have them as friends, I would have had little choice in, the, in those places. No, it's for me, the problem is not the individual. The problem is the system. And so I, I don't hate rich people at all. I feel kind of sad for them because they've worked many cases quite hard to get to be rich imagining that that's what life is about and then they get very disappointed along the way and after three martinis they tell me all about it. so you you think they're working too hard and they're not enjoying life and because of that you know they would be much happier if they work less that's what you think among other things yeah i think they'd be happier if not only if they worked less but if the kind of work they did and the kind of relationships they have with other people in that work were different they'd be an awful lot happier. And, and I'm, that's not just my opinion. That's what they've told me. So, so let me ask you this. A lot of times in life, like for myself, obviously we were just talking about the painting behind me. Uh, many times when you go back and you see somebody, how they formed their opinions, there is a certain trail on how they got to it, right? How did you get to the opinions and beliefs that you have today? If you can go back and talk about, I was raised in a family, here's my mom and dad, this is what happened to me at this age. I kind of want to know the underlying motivation that led you to believe in what you believe in today. Well, sure, I can give you some of the milestones, at least as best I've been able to make, make them out. Um, I grew up, I was born in Ohio in the Midwest. My father worked in a steel factory in uh, Youngstown, Ohio. Um, but when I was five years old, we moved east and we settled in a suburb of New York City called New Rochelle, you may know it. And um, it was a commuter town. My father took the train into New York City every day, uh, worked like uh, uh, really hard in the city, came home in the evening. Uh, most of the people in New Rochelle were commuters um, like him. And so the train took about 35 minutes to get from New Rochelle into Grand Central Station. And when I went with my father, a very important, um, we would pass on this train through Harlem that part of New York City. And, you know, looking like as a youngster, looking out the window, it was very easy for me to see two things. One, the people whose apartments, by the way, were often no more than four, five, six feet from where the train passed. Mm. Um, I could see into their apartments because that's where the level of the train was. And I could see two things. One, that they were very poor. And number two, that they were black. Uh, the, the, these were very clear signs. Even a little kid could figure that out. And so I asked my father, what, what is that? Why, why are those people living like that? And my father, who was mostly a distant father and didn't give me all that much time, somehow felt that this was an important question. 
and gave me a level of attention and concern that I'm sure was the most valuable thing about all of this. But he also explained to me that we live in a society which is fundamentally unfair to an awful lot of people. And for example, those poor people living crowded in those uh, not real nice looking apartments, those are among the kinds of people that are not well treated, not given a fair shake in life. Um, and I listened to him the way a child does. But, you know, I went with him fairly often. He did take me. How old were you at that time when he told you this? I'm curious. I, I would say I was probably nine, ten, oh, wow. eleven okay. years of age. Very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I half understood what he was talking about. I loved the attention. And so, you know, the way children do, the next time we went into New York, I made sure at around the same time to ask a variation of the same question so that we would have this conversation, which I very much enjoyed. And then, you know, as I grew older, I began to get interested in, in basically understanding, you know, the, the basic questions that came to me. Why are some nations rich and other ones poor? Why are some people rich and others poor? Why is the quality of life so different? New Rochelle is a suburb that has very poor and very rich people and a good number in between. So I was constantly reinforced in asking that kind of question. Now, your, your pops, uh, uh, who was your dad's inspiration? Like, if I were to ask, who was your dad's favorite president? Would, he, would you say FDR? Would you say, who, who, was he, who was somebody that he admired and he liked? Um, I'm trying to think. I think the first person in this country, he was an immigrant. Let me, let me get, get, go back. I was the born in the United States. Got it. But neither my father nor my mother were. My father was French and my mother was German. So I grew up speaking French and German. Nice. I only learned English when they put me in the kindergarten and I had to speak it. Uh, so the first person my father I remember speaking highly of was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And that person loomed large as a political leader who my father felt gave a damn about the average person did a lot of things to help people in a very hard time, the Great Depression. Um, and I remember hearing him talk very glowingly about FDR. Now, when you, when you think about that, when you say FDR, so for you, you've had your belief system since you were nine years old. It's not like you're somebody where you say, I used to be a Republican, my parents were Republicans. And I decided I realized that's not the way to go. So I went and studied and then I became a socialist because I met a professor. You've had this belief system for 60 some years. You've had it for a long time. I've had the belief system for a long time, but I've also entertained other belief systems. Partly again, my father and my mother were very open-minded. They did not want me to be a parrot. They did not want me to parrot even their perspectives. So in my home, there hangs a photograph of my first political act, which is standing at the commuter train station in New Rochelle, New York, holding a sign that read, I like Ike, which was actually Eisenhower in the Republican race yeah, for course. president. And, you know, I had no problem doing that with my friends and my parents. They did ask me questions why I was doing it, yeah. but I told them why, and that was my business to determine so they've been very good about that. I, I've never felt, and I did the same with my two oh. kids. Uh, it's not my job 
to shape your political ideas. I'm sure some of that happens no matter what we do. Just sure, name, of course. Name of it. But otherwise, um, I don't think that's appropriate any more than telling you what religious uh, affiliation you ought to have or anything like that. Do your kids have the same political beliefs as you? I don't know if they're the same. In, in the way America works, they'd be left of center, but they're okay. not the same. They're not so the same. they're not as left as you maybe, but they're left of center. They're left of center. My son, much less left. My daughter, uh, closer to me in, okay. in that respect. How old were you the first time you read Communist Manifesto? Uh, 16 or 17. So, so did a school teacher give it or did your pops or mom say read the book? My, my father told me, this is an important book for you to read. Given your interests, given your questions, given our conversations, um, you know, here, here you're getting something that is very European. For someone who's been through the European schooling That's system, weird thing. Uh, the American system was a continuing shock. Yeah. The fact that I, give you an example, when I was young, uh, my when I went to high school, ninth grade, the first time, the way high school is set up in, in New York State, my father asked me about my classes in Latin and Greek. So I answered my father, there are no classes in Latin and Greek in my high school. He didn't believe me. He said, oh, you must be sure. mistaken. The next day he went into the school with me, barged right into the principal's office, he was polite and all that, but he said, look, I want to talk to you about Latin and Greek. And the principal was a very nice guy. The principal, He brought me in there, so I, of course, had to be witness to all this. Uh, the principal said, we have never taught Greek in this high school, at least in the years I've been the principal. Uh, and we don't teach Latin unless four or more parents, four or more sets of parents were to demand it. If, if four or more? four or more, if four or more want it, we will get a part-time teacher to offer it. My father then went around, found another three parents, and I learned Latin in, in school, but in a class of four students, wow. because there were that only that many parents. I mean, my father stopped when he got four, but that's how I learned. My father was always of the opinion that what was offered to and expected of American high school students was a scandal. It was not serious. He, for example, he gave me Plato and Aristotle to read. He gave me St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. We're not I Catholic. That. It had I nothing to do that. with that. But if he felt that an educated human being uh, needs exposure to these great works, and he was aghast that the high school made no effort. Now, let me ask you, how old were you the first time you read Wealth of Nations or Atlas Shrugged? That was college. That would have been three or four years later. Um, right. I read Adam Smith basically because I had a class, a freshman class at Harvard that gave me, you know, a few selected readings. I don't know, 30, 40 pages worth of yeah. it. I found that so intriguing and so interesting because it was my question. Why are some, you know, why are wealthy, the wealth of nations? Why do some have it and some don't? Yep. So it was a book that entranced me. I liked it. I learned from it. I've had respect for that work all my life as, and right to this moment. Uh, so that's when I encountered that. 
And so, so when you read Wealth of Nations and you read the uh, 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 Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, both times when you were in college, did you at that point start debating the teacher? Did you kind of start defending uh, more philosophies that were more uh, from the altruism, more from the Karl Marx side? Or were you, were you a debate guy from the moment you started reading these books? Or was it more just like, oh, wow, interesting. Let me see what this is about. No, I think I was more of a debater type. I wanted to, to fight. But to be real honest with you, and I'm assuming that's what you want, um, my teachers could not or would not answer more and more of my questions as I became a sophomore and a junior mm -hmm. and a senior in college. And I could tell because these were sometimes teachers I liked, sometimes teachers I didn't like on a personal level. But I could see that they couldn't answer my questions either because they didn't know what it was I was asking or they knew, but it was frightening or scaring them to go into it. I could tell in some cases which of those it was. In others, I just guessed. But the level of discomfort that my questions would provoke made me back off. Just as a, I didn't want to make these people's lives unpleasant. As I say, some of these were teachers I liked and I learned from. Yeah. I didn't want to be a pain in their rear end, but I could see that my questions put them in a very uncomfortable place. So what I did was I didn't pursue it. I would ask a question. I tried to make it worded in a way that wasn't confrontational. And then when I got a very dissatisfying answer or no answer at all, yeah. I would literally, and I mean this, I would run to the library at the end of the class, bury myself in the library the way few other students did, and read myself silly trying to work out what a good answer to that question would have been that the teacher was unable or unwilling to do. So the opposite answer of yours, not your answer. So meaning the answer to the question you were asking. As if if the teacher was to answer a question that they didn't have, you'd go try to find the answer that they, they should have given. That's right. Okay. That's exactly so, what I tried to do. So, you know, sometimes, but to be fair, I mean, I don't want to be, you know, misspeak here. There were also cases where um, the teacher did give me an answer or kind of dismissed my question. Mm -hmm. That got me even more upset. And then I went to the library to reinforce my sense that, I had a point to make here. I had a, there was some validity to what I was saying. And then I would learn that I was wrong in some areas, right in others. But, it, you know, you get better educated if you're driven like that. If something is really important to you, you kind of read the article or you read the book in a different way uh, from what you do if it's just an assignment in a course. You're an April 1st baby. I mean, it, it makes sense, you know, as an April 1st. My dad is April 10th, and uh, my former COO was April the. 12th and my best friend from the army is april 9th you guys are wired uh, in a very interesting way i hire april april babies because i love them you know it's interesting you say that when i was a kid in iran my mom and dad would put me in a bible study in christian sunday school and i would always get kicked out of sunday school and because i would ask the weird questions i said if god loves us so much why do we get bombed why do we so many people died you know and they had a hard time with me they would say sir you got to keep your son out of this because he's confusing the other kids so I was an atheist for 25 years of my life. But let's let's go back to a, a part that you brought up. You said your dad was a distant father, meaning he did his best, but he was a hard, you know, he was a hard worker. 
So when you did drive up to Harlem with them, you use that as an opportunity to ask more questions. Looking back, did you in, did a part of your motivation come from a place where you read a book and you said, you know what, if my dad didn't have to work as hard as he did, I probably would have been able to spend more time with him. Did you ever process it that way or no? Yes, I did. I was, I was aware. Um, I was aware. I, I don't remember whether this happened to me, this recognition that you point to in college or in graduate school. But one or the other, I had a very, very clear sense. Uh, and I became a little bit uh, psychologically self-aware. I should put in parentheses, my wife is a psychotherapist and my daughter is also a psychotherapist. Beautiful. So, so I am surrounded by, I've been tutored in psychological understanding for many, many years by two people who are very close to me. But in any case, yes, I had a sense that my father, uh, as an immigrant here in the United States, had had to work very, very hard. All of his education in Europe, all of his connections, all of that was gone. All of that was left behind when he came here. He really had to start from nothing. Uh, he worked his rear end off. I do believe, not to be dramatic, that the heart attack that finally killed him was not unconnected to the anxieties of making it here, to the insufficiency of money. So yes, I had a personal way of feeling that this system had not treated my father or my mother um, very well. We were always, as a family, grateful that they could leave Europe and survive and come here. And my parents had a, an appreciation for the United States because it had saved them the way many others in their sure. family had not been saved. But having sure. said that and not denying it, the level of education and the level of work imposed on people to even scratch out a basic living, um, I think it killed him and I think it harmed him and it, it made him less productive to this country than he could have been if he were not treated the way he had been. How old were you when he passed away? Let me see. He died in 1931. You, oh, you were 31. So you were young when you passed away. So yes. you passed away early. Okay, I, yes. I, can, I can see how that can be a painful experience. But let me ask you this. Would you consider yourself a hardworking man? Would you say you're a hardworking person? Yes, I am referred to by most of the people who know me as a workaholic. So if you're a workaholic, maybe because your father sounds like my father, okay? My dad uh, in Iran ran a manufacturer. He ran a he ran Nivea and Max Factor. I don't know if you're familiar with those two. You don't look like somebody that puts makeup on every day, but no. But I'm familiar with those brands. So my dad ran Max Factor and Nivea in Iran in U.S. money. He was making, you know, like comparable to hundred thousand dollars a month in Iran. And then he went from Iran when the war happened. Khomeini died six weeks later. We escaped. My mother and I. And my sister, we went to Germany, lived at a refugee camp, and then we came out here. He had heart attacks after heart attacks, and he worked at a 99-cent store for 15 years in Inglewood, California, okay? Right, right. And you know how it is a father-son relationship. It sounds like you love your father as well. I had a very good, a very, till today, he's still alive, got the yeah. knock on wood, he's still, he's still with us here. Uh, one of the things that I saw, if my dad was born here, my dad would have been a very, very successful man. But sometimes one, one of the best things he did is bringing me here. So maybe your dad's example to you is why you ended up becoming who you are today, you know, by having that work ethic being passed down to you. Where Absolutely. You, 
Yeah, where you're nope. just his legacy is continuing through you. Yep, and I think that that's something that happened long ago and happens on very deep levels that you're only barely aware of and that you certainly cannot control, or at least I can't. Sure. But, but mm -hmm. I'm not upset about it. I really like my father, and I'm grateful for all the things that he that he did for me. So, so now let's go into philosophy. This was very helpful because this kind of gave me an idea about your background, parents, and, and the viewer can also get an idea about where you're at and how you came to a conclusion. So, so you say why, the question, why are some people, I've asked this question myself when I was a kid, but you, you, you brought it up already three times now, so why don't we start there? Why are some people rich and some people poor according to you? Well, because our systems, our economic systems are set up like that. There is no way that a capitalist system of the sort we have uh, could have any other outcome than to make a minority rich and a majority poor. I mean, it's a little bit like sort of understanding the, the, the history of economic systems. The major three economic systems over the last, I don't know, several thousand years, at least I'm talking now, you know, Western Europe, North America, and so on, um, the major three were slavery, feudalism, and then capitalism. Um, and there's something all three of them have in common. A small number of people sit at the top of this society. In slavery, it's the master. In feudalism, it's the lord. And in capitalism, it's the employer. And a vast majority of people are in the other position. They're the serf or the slave or the employee. And it shouldn't surprise you that if you look at slavery, the masters are rich and powerful and the slaves, by and large, are not. And if you look at feudalism, the lords are rich and powerful and by and large, the serfs are not. And we live in a capitalist system where, by and large, the employers do really well, relatively, and the employees, well, I'll be nice, not so much. And in order for us not to have the split between rich and poor, whether it's on the level of a, of a region or a nation or, a, or inside a small community, we would have to confront whether the effort to overcome the, the, the gap between rich and poor is a reasonable objective if you abstract from the economic system that basically produces those things. That's why I said at the beginning when you asked me the question, do I hate rich people? No, I know they end up like people like me who come from modest circumstances, very hard not to conclude as you go through life, okay, I see now that there are rich people and poor people, and it isn't hard for me to tell you which I'd rather be. I'd rather be there than over there. But the problem is there aren't enough theirs for everybody who feels that way to get to that point. And it's a very sad reality that is hard for people to come to terms with, which is why people like Ayn Rand can be popular because she presents an idea that suggests, oh, we could all do this. Uh, and you don't believe that? Not for one oh minute. Gosh, Richard, come on. Okay, so let's let's talk about a couple things here that you brought up. And I've watched, I've watched your debates. I've watched your... Uh, uh, different things that you've done. So you said slavery, feudalism, and capitalism, okay? So slavery and feudalism versus capitalism. Slavery and feudalism have one uh, uh, underlying uh, uh, difference between capitalism because in feudalism and slavery, you don't have a choice. There are no choices. You know, they tell you what to do and you better do it. 
in capitalism, they tell you what to do and you have a choice. You can say, screw you, I'm leaving you, I resign. You know, a, a lot of times people think a uh, just because somebody is a CEO, they're such a powerful, incredible life that they live and they'll never get fired. But the truth of the matter is, CEOs get more get fired more often than employees do because every time an employee leaves a guy or a CEO to another company and takes the trade secrets, that's a form of being fired. Every time a client leaves, it's a form of being fired. So you cannot say feudalism and slavery and compare it to capitalism. That's pretty, uh, you're, you know, today a lot of millennials would say, Richard, you're reaching. That's what they would say to you. Well, let me respond, okay? <clears throat> you remember the story of Robin Hood? Okay, yes, I do. I've watched it many times. Okay. Uh, let me remind you, Robin Hood's merry band of men in the woods, those were runaway serfs. Turns right. out serfs had a choice. They could stay underneath the Lord on the feudal manor where they were probably born, or they could try to break away from that situation. They could mm -hmm. run into the forest and join up with Robin Hood. They could get beyond the reach of the Lord, whose reach was usually quite limited. Yeah. They could set themselves out to then become what were called free peasants or yeomen or small farmers. There were, in fact, all kinds of options that they had. They were risky, but, you know, leaving your job in, as, in a capitalist economy, that's risky too. In fact, having a job in capitalism is risky. Right now, we've got 35 million people who just got fired. It turns out employment is risky. Slaves also, by the way, ran away. Slaves also made revolts. Slaves also carved out for themselves much better conditions than they had been born into through a variety of mechanisms. The portrayal of all of them as unfree, which is the way the literature does it, and capitalism as free strikes me as an extraordinary reach since the vast majority of people who are employed by a capitalist, an employer, yeah. either live with that or they're free to quit in which case their basic option is to go be an employee of somebody else as an employer, which is not quite the escape you might want to recommend. It's a choice, but it's not a choice to escape the system because you really can't do that uh, in most cases. And if you were to suggest that a, an employee can go out and start his own business, most of them really can't. And many of those who do end up in a situation that many small businessmen and women will tell you about, which is they work harder than the people who are employees and look longingly at the possibility of going back to be an employee because however ugly and unpleasant it was, working for yourself can be even worse. So now let's, you, you touched on a lot of things, so let me take them one at a time. I took notes, right. I'm taking notes here. So you're the professor, Good. I'm the student, I'm taking notes here. All right. So let's talk about Robin Hood. So Robin Hood was taking money from who and giving it to who? He was taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor. That was, he, that was his specialty. But he was, was he, was it really the rich he was taking money from or was he taking money from the government who was taxing people too much, Richard? You got to tell the true story of Robin Hood. Well, I grew up in Iran, I watch it a few hundred times. So okay. he wasn't taking money from the rich. He was taking money from the government 
that are so noble. They want to do such good things for the people. No, 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 no. And he no. was giving it to the people. Maybe you and I read all the Mr. Robin Hood story a little different. I watch it in Farsi. Maybe the translation was incorrect. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. But here's the way I read it. Yeah, he was against the government because he saw the government as in the clutches of the rich. And so for him, whether he stole from a rich traveler going through the forest or he had pitched battles with the sheriff of Nottingham, if you remember his arch enemy, for him, the distinction between the rich people and the politicians those rich people had in their pocket was a difference he didn't care much about. He would take from either one of them or both of them and give to the people that they together were putting on the short end of the stick. Yeah, I don't, I don't if, you're, if you're asking about some of the, so again, it goes back to the taxation. They were taxing the hell out of the people the government was, these noble people that eventually a greedy person comes and abuse power. But if there's one part that I get from Robin Hood is the following. You do need uh, laws and you do need lawyers. If you look at China back in 1984, China only had four law schools. You know the whole Milton Friedman argument when he says you don't really need laws and you know just kind of leave it alone? That argument is not going to work 100%. You need, you need law and you need lawyers, right? They had four law schools in 1984 and only 2,000 lawyers. And China had to make sure they get laws or else the powerful businesses without some sort of regulation and laws would abuse other people. So that part, absolutely, I agree. Because today you're seeing a lot of that taking place in many industries. Whoever can get the best lobbyists that can pay the most money to people that they can control and campaign with, they can pass a lot of the laws. But when you say right. the rich and the poor, I... Uh, I sometimes wonder what direction you go from there. As far as the, the you know, uh, uh, the, the people that are employees who cannot be rich, you're saying poor people cannot be rich. Rich, do you know how many people last year filed their taxes that they made a million dollars? How many people in America do you think filed taxes that they made a million dollars? What do you think that number is? I don't know. Income. What do you think? I'm actually curious to know what you think. Good question. No statistic in my head comes to my mind. But this is from the IRS. It's a yeah. government organization that you trust. Yeah. No, no. Listen, you want to paint me as an advocate of the government. I'm not. That's not. I, I don't trust the government. I don't see the government as okay, an independent. Thank God, man, because we're on the same page there. That's yeah. good to hear. Okay. But so I, how, how many well, I was, last year I made a half a million dollars? I, I, I don't know what a number is. I actually am curious to know what you think. So you and I are having a drink together. I don't know if you drink. We're having coffee, hot chocolate. We're having a beer. And you're talking, we're shooting the you know what. And I say, Richard, how many people last year made a million dollars in taxes? What would you say? Four million. Four million people, you said, yeah. made a million dollars. Yeah. So yeah. the way you did the math was 330 million. You did 1%, a little over 1%. Of the 330 million, half of them can't work because their kids or they're older. So working employees, we have, 100, uh, we have 150 million people in America that actually work. Uh, and out of the 150 million that work, 1% makes around 460. 1% makes 460. If you know how they say you're in the 1%, you make 460. 500,000 people last year filed in their income taxes that they made over a million dollars. 500,000. It's not like it's only 18 people. It's not like it's only 62,000 people. It's 500,000 people last year made a million dollars in America. If you and I were talking and you were to say, 
I climbed Mount Everest and I'm the only one that did it uh, after 65 years old. You're the only one. I'd be like, oh my, I can never do it. I have a hard time sometimes climbing my office here, you know, three stories. I'm going crazy. You climb Mount Everest. That's impossible. I get that argument that not everybody can climb Mount Everest. But if Richard, 500,000 people in America can make a million dollars, don't you think 1 million people can make a million dollars? Don't you think more people can make a million dollars? No. You don't believe that? No, not for one minute. Seriously? Yeah. What's your argument? How do you, how do you argue that part, though? So 500,000 Richard made a million dollars last year. Right. That's a lot of people. Right. But in order for there to be 500,000 people who make a million, then there have to be an awful lot of people who make very little, which we've always had. Capitalism has always produced and reproduced vast numbers of poor people. As a system, it is very efficient in reproducing vast poverty. It might be nice to focus on the rich at the other end, but they are relatively small in number compared to those who really are having a hard time. And you could, I suppose, blame it on the individual. That would be very convenient for those who are rich because then they could claim, oh, it's because of me, rather than a system that assigns these roles. But you know, the master knew that the reason he was a master was because his father and mother were masters. And the slave understood on, that he was... You're saying in the world of business, or you're saying the master who owned slaves? The master who owned slaves. Okay. okay. And the slave understood he was a slave mostly because his mother and father were slaves, and that's how the system reproduced the people. And at the top of capitalism, there is a relatively small class. I went to school with them for 10 years. I really do know them pretty well and a good number of them are my friends to this day, uh, but that's a self-reproducing group that does let others in from time to time. You gotta stop hanging around with Harvard, Yale, and uh, Stanford people. You gotta get out and go to Glendale Community College. You, you gotta get out and go to some regular people like us who are not at your level of brilliance and intelligence and your peers at Harvard. You gotta come and hang out with us a little. You've been hanging around with too many elitist and powerful people, Richard. Some uh -huh. of us small people are regular people. No, that was over when I was, you know, when I got my PhD at Yale. They always looked at me uh, as somebody who must have been dropped on the floor by his mother at an inopportune moment when he was a baby because he went in this other direction. You're not supposed to go uh, to become a critic of capitalism if you go to Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. If you're not familiar, let me assure you that my teachers, with very, very few exceptions, were cheerleaders for capitalism. Every time What year I, is this? What year what, is this? What year is this? I, I, I entered Harvard in 1959, and I finished my education at Yale in 1970. That I makes sense. A lot has changed in 50 yeah, years. But, but I've been a professor at those and other universities ever since, and in my humble opinion, nothing has changed. It is, I, I, same, it is the same today. I mean, I go around the country. I speak every year in, I don't know, 20, 25 college and university settings from state schools and community colleges all up to, to private universities. And the, the combination of ignorance, there's no nice way to say this, the combination of ignorance about 
capitalism and socialism and all these kinds of questions. And the, com the, the combination of that ignorance for many and a kind of weird confidence in a point of view for which they have no support at all teaches me, since these are perfectly nice and intelligent people, that this remains a taboo topic. For most kids, they do not, as they go through college, whether it's community college or a university, they are not exposed, they can't be, to anybody who takes this stuff, the critique of capitalism, seriously. They're just not given the opportunity. By the way, half the time they invite me, it's precisely to kind of open a little space in a curriculum that would otherwise not touch it. I don't know about that. I think the last, I went to uh, Harvard uh, uh, for a OPM program, meaning an owner president management program. It's like a three week program you go to right. and you have to do a certain amount of dollars per year to qualify for it. So I went to it and it was the time where Trump and Hillary were debating, okay? Right. And so in one of the halls, this is we're opening up the debate. Teachers showed up, professors showed up, everybody showed up. And I said, you know, I'll just go in there and I'll sit in the corner just to watch to see what happens. Richard, 100% of people hate it passionately. Your favorite person in the world that you have a painting on the wall right next to you, President Trump. They hate it. They hate it, President Trump. And they were all like, bowing down to how amazing, you know, Hillary Clinton was. I'm talking five, 600 people. And I'm just like sitting there watching. And I'm like, wow, this is pretty. And this is a guy that voted for Clinton. And this is a guy that uh, voted on the left and the right. And he's a registered independent today. So I'm watching these guys. I'm like, wow, this is pretty wild. So now when I hire people and then they come from schools, they come out of UCLA. If they come out of uh, Harvard, if they come out of a uh, uh, Berkeley is obviously you know where Berkeley's at. If you, if they come a lot of these schools, even Yale, uh, your your the reason why a Sanders was able to get as much traction as he did is a byproduct of the last thirty years socialism's getting a uh, a, a lot of a, through education and school and a lot of socialists are able to pass their agenda to kids and kids are thinking about it. You're seeing that it's not like I'm the first person that's telling you this. So wait, 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 stop, Patrick. I don't agree with that. You don't agree with the fact that the, the spirit of socialism is in universities today? Absolutely. Let me explain to you what I mean. First of all, I don't like Hillary Clinton. I would, have, I would not have bowed down to Hillary Clinton then. I wouldn't do it now. She is, for me, the other side of the same coin that Mr. Trump is on the other side of. And I don't want that coin, neither the one side nor the other. A socialist perspective, as far as I understand it, uh, has a you know, finds the, the distinction between those two of them minimal. It's not zero, but it's minimal. And an excited supporter of either of them, you would not find me uh, to be. Now on the question of Bernie and the interest in quote-unquote socialism. I go all over the country. I really do. I interact with these people all the time. And here's what I can tell you, which may comfort you, may upset you, I don't know. They are not... Uh, pro-socialist, whatever they say on their polls, what they are is bitter and angry that what they took to be the promise of capitalism isn't available to them. They are loaded up with debt going through their college. The quality and quantity of jobs they can get with their BA is worse than it's ever been. They were led to expect by their parents, by their minister, by the community they grew up in, 
a, a, a set of opportunities that are fast disappearing, and they know it from talking to one another. They feel, to be blunt, betrayed by capitalism. That's what they're saying when they say, well, what's wrong with socialism? Because it really isn't that socialism has captured them or that they even know much about it. It's just, it's their way of giving the finger I agree with to what capitalism. You I actually agree with what you just said. And I, I totally agree with what you just said, but this is the part I agree with. Let me explain. So you said, they're, they're, it's not that, you know how nowadays they say people don't vote for somebody, they vote against somebody. You've heard you've heard this before your entire yes, time. Okay. Yes, yes. So they're bitter at capitalism, okay? So now go to capitalism. So now the next question I'll be asking you is what what is the definition of capitalism to you? Because you went straight from capitalism to college debt. That college debt is not capitalism. College debt is controlled by the government being able to push every debt through them to find a way to make more money. College could be one sixth of a cost what it is today. When you got a Harvard uh, University sitting on $40 billion of uh, endowment and they took a $8.55 million check from the government just two months ago because of coronavirus and they're sitting on 40 billion, colleges are more expensive because of government. If you look at that, uh, uh, debt is higher due to government. They don't have to lower the interest rates the way they are to what, where it is today. Giving money away constantly to bail people out, that's the government's ties. That's not a capitalistic system. A, a true capitalistic system is not the involvement of the government trying to bail out somebody's too big to fail companies. So I'm not coming from a place of let's go bail out another of these big companies and let's not prevent them from going out of business. If they screw up, they should go out of business. But that's not capitalism. That is a, and I'll finish up and I'll give you a, a, a turn it over to you. That is a interpretation of these teachers who have jobs making 49 grand a year, 62,000 a year, 82,000 a year if they're professors or maybe higher ups, private school. Most teachers, you know, don't make a lot of money. They make 36,000, 40,000. I don't see teachers getting up saying, capitalism's awesome, guys. I don't see that. I see teachers for 16 years saying how bad capitalism is and how bad rich people are because they're not the happiest people in the world. 16 years later, these 22-year-old kids are like, dude, these rich people suck and capitalism sucks. <laughs> Who's against rich people? Bernie? I'll freaking vote for this guy. That's how I see the process in taking place. What do you think? Good. I'm glad you put it that way. So let me tell you how and why I disagree with, uh, with what you said. Um, I find it somewhere between amusing and ironic that the defenders of capitalism have had to resort, particularly in recent decades, to what I take to be a hustle. Uh, it's like selling you snake oil uh, medicine that's going to cure you of everything. Wow. Here's the hustle. Here's the hustle. Wow. When, you, when there's unemployment in this country, it's because the employer has fired you. When you lose your home, it's because the bank or the lender has foreclosed on you. Uh, so when you have a system that periodically, every four to seven years, has a crash uh, in which millions of people are thrown out of work, I mean, the instability of capitalism is stupefying, uh, or it produces enormous inequality, which these days is also stupefying, you run the risk that people will, in fact, turn against the system that they've been told is what they are living in, namely capitalism. So it was a smart move. Hustler is a mixed thing, good or bad. It was a good hustle 
to say, hey, given our system, it's going to piss off an awful lot of people. We need to train those people to blame something other than the system. And the target that was chosen, and this is very old, is the government. So you have this phenomenon in America. Unemployed people don't blame the employer who fired them. They blame instead the government. They find something that they can point to that the government is the bad guy lying behind and causing the nice employer to fire me or the nice banker to dispossess me of my home and destroy my family and all the rest of it. This, this remarkable, and Ayn Rand is obviously with all of this, this notion that the government is the bad guy, which neatly avoids the question, gee, why would the government be the bad guy? Is that intrinsic to government? Some people say yes. Oh, historically, they've been the bad guy. Historically and in the present. I mean, the blaming the government is an American pastime. It's more popular than baseball. Not in Iran. I lived in Iran, we said it. I lived in Germany, they said it. The government historically has been the biggest bully in the world. That is, that is proven. No, careful. It has been said by people who want the blame for a system failure not to go on the system. No, that's, that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a bit of a hustle. I would explain what the government does because of who controls the government, who has the predominant influence. Governments yeah. do what they are pressed to do. You know who writes the laws in this country. It's the lobbyists. And you know, I hope you know, that 90% of lobbyists come from capitalist enterprises. Nobody else can afford it. You know, the big donations come from the richest people who are enriched mostly by big business, etc., etc. The government is the agent, not of all of us, but of those of us who have the ability to shape and influence what the government does. Blaming the government is very useful to get the capitalist system off the hook. But I don't take that seriously. For me... The government is another arm of the system. The system works some of its magic through private enterprise and some of its magic through the government's shaping and interaction. And for me, that's what socialism, one of its important insights is to understand that the pretense of the government as an independent actor in the society is mostly phony it's false it's not it's not what's going on and that the change therefore can never just be elect tweedledum or elect tweedledee clinton trump yes they're different but in many ways they're the same i don't know if you saw it a few years ago nancy pelosi was giving a talk somewhere in a college and a student a young man raised his hand and asked her about socialism and you could tell, because the video was right on her, she was very perplexed. And she looked at kind of befuddled, took a few extra seconds, and then looked at the young man perfectly nicely and said, I really don't know what you're referring to. We are all capitalists now. I've seen that. Yeah, perfect. I, that, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly right. Capitalism has two political parties in the United States. What's your States. point, though? What's your point with that? 
The point is that the government should not be made the fall guy. It's not appropriate. The government is not an independent it's not, actor. It's not the fall guy. It's not the fall guy. That's not what I'm saying. Let me explain what I mean by being okay. a fall. By the way, Richard, historically, you cannot dispute the fact that government's not bullied people. I mean, you, you can't dispute that. I understand today, some people are massive corporations. They can, they can push people around. They can censor people. They can do a lot of things today. And no right. one's disputing that part. But, but what I'm talking about is with, with you talking about, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the power government pushes around and some things they do. So earlier you said you're also not a government guy. Now yes. you're saying it's an escape that the capitalists use to blame it all on governments. So yes. let me ask you this question. What is the only way I can have a monopoly with the help of who? What is the only way I can have a monopoly? Can I have a monopoly all by myself? Is it possible? For me to build a business and be the biggest and have a monopoly all by myself, or do I need someone's help? According to everything that the, that the discipline of economics has ever argued, the answer is for sure you can do it by yourself. There's no way in the world I can do it by myself. No way in the world I can. Let me explain to you why I cannot do it by myself. So, okay. so there's no, I need the laws to be on my side because I need you who work for the state, that your campaign's coming up to tell you, I need you to make the barrier to enter very, very tough and allow me to buy that company for $17 billion to put my competition out of business for me to own a monopoly. And without your approval, I can't have a monopoly because with your approval, if you follow the law, I get stopped. I can't make certain moves. The only way you see monopolies is with the help of the government coming in and saying, don't worry about it. I'll help you out. Let's go make this monopoly happen. Or else it's not possible. It's Listen, not possible to do so. Let me give you the counter argument. We have two basic laws in the United States against monopoly. Okay. Right? One is the Sherman anti You know the story. Okay. Those laws were fought for by the victims of monopolies that had come into power independent of governmental support. The whole purpose of those laws was to not only prevent the government from helping monopolies, but to put the government in the business of breaking up the monopolies that had formed on their own. In economics, here's how the logic works. So if you look at the cost of producing a commodity over time, the line, the cost curve, it's called in economics, keeps going down. It's basically the law of the larger the quantity of goods you produce, the cheaper each unit costs you, and that's kind of built into modern technology. Sure. So, if you have 500 firms competing, each one trying to capture the market for whatever, the one that gets the jump, for whatever reason, in step one, to be able to sell more Xs than the other guy, will be able to produce at a lower cost. Eventually, when you follow the logic, there's one guy left, the one who produced the largest amount, therefore got it to the lowest cost, could charge the lowest price, and that would outcompete all the others. Monopoly is the product of competition. The irony of, by the way, this is in Adam Smith, not just Karl Marx and others. The logic of capitalism is a competitive system that destroys itself. And that has, in fact, happened and led to the opposition of other companies and the public who don't want to be ripped off by this process. Can you, can you elaborate and define destroys itself? What does destroys itself mean? Like a company, I'm competing, 
and then I get too casual, too lazy, somebody else comes and destroys me? Is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. This is a situation where uh, there's 500 companies producing, I don't know, potato chips. Okay. And, and one of them comes across a new kind of potato and, and it goes better. So he can sell more potato chips than the next guy. Because sure. he can sell 10 million bags instead of 2 million bags, he can produce potato chips at less per bag than it costs the other guys who produce a smaller amount. So because he can produce at a lower cost, he drops the price. That swings the demand over to his product and away from the others who can't afford to match him because they don't have the low cost since they don't have the big, uh, the big output. Eventually, one guy is able to get the entire market and he will produce at the lowest possible price and the lowest possible cost, the others go out of business because at the price he charges, close to what his cost is, they can't compete. And so he's left all alone. Once that moment is reached, once he has no more competitors, then, then he can begin to jack up the price because you don't have anywhere else. Give me one example. Give me one example of that today. One example of that today. Why you want it today? It's all through history. No, no. Give it to me today. Give me one example of that today. Microsoft. Microsoft? Amazon. Amazon doesn't have competition? And Amazon charges up prices? What's expensive on Amazon? Amazon has driven almost everybody out of but the what, what? But what is expensive on Amazon? Name me one thing that's overpriced on Amazon, Richard. Your argument, I want to give it no, to no, you. No, no, give no, me no. one thing. That's not my my argument. You, is, you said eventually they raised the price. I'm just repeating what you said. Tell me one thing that's overpriced on Amazon. They're not they're not ready to at that point yet. They're not the only deliverer. There's, that's just not possible though, because right now Amazon is scared shitless of Walmart. Right. They're scared shitless of Walmart. That's because capitalism works. Now my concern is the following. My concern is Bezos moves moves to DC. He moves to DC. That scares me. He moves to D.C. He gets in the pocket of lobbyists. I'm not sitting here, you know, oh, my gosh, Jeff Bezos is the greatest entrepreneur. That's not what I'm saying. My concern is, is his next move is to buy politicians to be able to bully the other guys. That's my concern. I'm not okay for that. But you cannot tell me that the prices at Walmart or Amazon are so expensive. That, that doesn't make any sense because it's not true. Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by expensive, but I would tell you that they also make very careful arrangements not to put each other in that competitive situation. No, they They're do. exactly aware of what I told you. They're aware that this is a race to see who gets to be the one with the lowest cost and that whoever that is... Customer wins. Wait a minute. That's the way the game is played, and that's how you go out of business. These companies then can get together when they've gone down from 50 or 500 to only six or seven, and then they work out an arrangement. The history of antitrust is the history of the government breaking in at those times because like with Amazon and Walmart, there's a reason that, that Bezos is the richest man in the world and the Walmart family is the richest in the world. They have jacked up the prices above their oh course. my gosh that, because they have no competition it's the complete opposite argument the argument is john doe's market in toledo was selling milk for 459 walmart came in and says this guy is charging it for too much we'll sell it to you for 359 john had to lower it to 349 to be able to compete 
It's the complete opposite argument there. No. That argument doesn't have weight behind it, Richard. It does. It's always been the history. You lower the price, you drive out your competitors, and when you have reached down to three or four... There's not one example of it today. There's not one example of it today. Listen, that's the history of the automobile. But I'm telling you today, you don't have one example of that today. One. We, we, we had a dozen. But it's overpriced. What are you buying that's overpriced? You're what buying are you buying that's overpriced? Everything you buy from Amazon and Walmart is priced higher than a competitive alternative would price it. What are you talking about? Everything I buy on Amazon is cheaper than the other places I buy. That's right. why people are buying on Amazon. That's so right. if you would have taken the argument the other way around, that's where I get stuck. So here's a suggestion for you to know that a capitalist gets stuck. The part that I get stuck is if you say to me, well, what about poor Bobby that runs a small market with seven employees and he can't afford to pay the minimum wage because when uh, uh, Bernie Sanders went up and said, raise the minimum wage, Jeff Bezos, to $15 a, uh, an hour. And you know what Jeff said? Oh, thank you, Bernie. You just put out 50% of my competition. I will gladly raise it to $15 and our Mr. Socialist, thank you for eliminating my competition. Why? Because none of my competitors in Toledo, Kansas, can raise the minimum wage for 15 bucks an hour because it's impossible. He officially put people out of business. The argument that you could have made for me to say that makes sense is what does that Joey do that runs a small market? How do I help that guy out? Him and his wife have been running that business for 60 years now. They're passing on to their kids. That, that place has got my dad worked out of 99 cents or people would come, they knew him. David, I once gave a talk in front of a couple thousand people and I kept talking about my dad, David, and where the, where the 99 cents was on Englewood. And he says, what does David look like? I said, like this. He says, I went to David every week. It was an emotional moment for me because it's like they wanted to go to him. There is an argument there, but there is no argument on prices going up today, Richard. That argument doesn't have weight today. I think it always did. That's why we have- Not know, today. Sure it does. It's the same argument that has existed all through the history of- Not today, though. Not today. Sure. Where today? What is expensive today? Let, let, let's- Everything that you buy is expensive because you are now, you're an economy that has been monopolized now for decades. I don't know about monopolized. I don't know about monopolized. Well, I don't know many, about monopolized. How many competitors to Amazon do you think there are? Depends on what product you're talking about. If in you're talking general, about Prime, if you're talking general, about their... In general, most people these days are buying online from a very small number of general providers. Yeah, I, providers. I, I, like I said to you, I am concerned about Amazon moving to DC to hire the best lobbyists and pay them the best money to no, make it harder for small business owners to compete them with the help of government. Then, yeah, but you're then just jumping into the story at a particular moment. Amazon understood, first it has to destroy all the little department stores and everything that they've done, just like Walmart. One as a deliverer, the other one as a brick and mortar, okay? They did that over the last 40 years in cooperation with the People's Republic of China for whom they became the mass distributor. They took care of wiping out nine-tenths of their competition. Now they have a de facto monopoly. They want to and they can in many areas raise prices above cost because they have no competitor. But there's, let me finish, there's a risk. There's a risk that people like you and people like me become critics 
and that we can reach the victims who are overpaying with our criticism about their operating a monopoly. They know that. How do they deal with that? By the Washington Post, if you're Jeffrey Bezos. Put yourself in a position to shape, to shape the narrative sure. so that you can now get the government to do what capitalists always want the government to do, namely to reinforce, to protect, and to extend whatever their needs are. And in this case, it's yeah. the need to perpetuate a monopoly position they were able to uh, you know, acquire. That's what they do. I, I agree. I agree. So then the core issue, Richard, here becomes the issue that I'm con that, that goes even deeper that I think about is the issue becomes our current election system and the model doesn't work. If I can buy my congressmen, my senators, my governors, my politicians, my presidents, if I can buy them, if I can buy them, guess who controls them? There's these big, too big to fail companies that can go around and push Absolutely. their weight around. They can control them. You're saying not true? No, no, I agree on that. I couldn't yeah. agree more. So, how, so how, let me ask you this. You're somebody that's well-read. You've been around. You, you have way more experience on this than me. What is an alternative to the model that we have today where politicians can't be bought? How, how do you fix that? I'm curious. Well, I think you have to change the system at the base. You, you're not going to change it. We've tried every reform imaginable. Those folks get around them. They evade them. They weaken them. They repeal them. For me, the, the fundamental issue is the way we've organized the economy. And that goes back to the beginning of our conversation, Patrick. If you have a small number of people who are employers grabbing all the profit into their hand and the vast majority of people are wage earners, you've set yourself up to fail. Those minorities, precisely because they are a minority, employers are a small special interest minority group in our society. They want profit because that's their reward. I get that. So they do what's useful to that. You ever ran a business? Have you ever ran a business? Yes, but let me just finish. So they buy politicians because that's part of what you do to be a successful capitalist. Suppose, just to answer your question, suppose the way business was organized wasn't hierarchical. An owner, a board of directors at the top, a tiny group, making all the basic decisions and telling the vast majority of employees where to stand, where to sit, when to come, where to go, and keeping the product of their labor at the end of the day. If we yeah. didn't have that, suppose we didn't have that bifurcation, the employer and his group and the employees, small group, majority, minority, yeah. majority. Yeah. Suppose we had, here it comes, a different economic arrangement. Let's call it, for lack of better word, economic democracy, or let's call it worker co-op. Here's the way it works. Everybody in an enterprise is equal. One person, one vote. We decide together what we're going to produce, what technology we're going to use, where we're going to produce, and what we're going to do with the output. No split between employer and employee, because we, the employees, are collectively our own boss. The desire of 95% of the small businesses I've ever spoken to is to be my own boss. Here's a way for the employees to run the business. And guess what? If the employees and the employers are the same people, there isn't a split on what the government is supposed to do. 
because if you lower your own wages to make more profits, you're just moving your money from one pocket to the other. It's an idiot's activity. It is a, no, a new world which maybe can support a government that genuinely respects one person, one vote, instead of pretending to do that. And you and I both know who controls the government, who controls and buys the votes, and all the rest. You ever owned a business before? I've worked on several businesses. I've started two or three. I've been on boards of directors. When you started those two or three, what happened to your businesses? Some went out of business, some survived. The ones that survived, how long did they survive? They're still going. Some of them are 30 years old. Are they profitable or non-profitable? Well, it depends on what you mean by profit, but they had net revenue and that's how they survived and grew. How, how, how dare you make profit? You ought to be ashamed of yourself, Richard, to be making profit. How dare you make profit off of people's back? How dare you run a profitable business? Oh, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, Mr. Professor Richard Wolf. That's how we started, Patrick. I don't hate rich people. I understand they're players in a system. I'm a player in the system, too. I breathe the foul air. I buy goods that are made in China with, with, with the wrong conditions. You know, my sneakers are made by children in Indonesia. I get it. I try to avoid patronizing them. But yeah, I'm with that. I don't see a problem with that. That's why I'm criticism of the system. I don't want to be in it either. But but what's wrong? Okay, let me ask you a different question. Let me ask you a different question. Are you in your house or are you in your, uh, uh, at a, a different building? In your house? In my house. Who chose the paint uh, on your wall? Who chose it? My wife and I. Your wife and you, okay, who chose the, the, if I come to your house and I walk around the sofas and the couches, who picked it? Both who chose it? Both, Both of you? Yeah. What did she pick and you didn't pick? Who's a better cook, you or her? I, I Honestly, I think me. <laughs> Make sure she doesn't see this, by the way. Oh, she's sitting in the next okay. room hearing all of this. Okay, all good. What's her name, by the way? Harriet. Harriet. Hello, Harriet. Anyway, so so you are a better cook than she is, right? Well, yeah, because in my house where I grew up, uh, we couldn't go in the kitchen. The kitchen was the kingdom of my mother, and only she could do anything in there. Her husband, my father, couldn't get in there either. She that was her I don't think that's fair. I don't no, think I that's don't fair. Think so either. But you I, know what it does? It makes the children, like my sister and I, very eager to be and work in the kitchen. Wow, you just explained capitalism. Yeah. You just explained capitalism. You just explained the structure of corporation. Your mother was the chairman of the board in the kitchen, and she told you guys you got to earn your way to get in the kitchen. You worked your tail off to learn, and now you're a better cook than Harriet. Congratulations for capitalism. I wish she had done what you say. I wish she had said you could earn your way. But she was a real capitalist. You weren't getting in. I love your mother. No mother, no matter how hard you worked, you weren't getting into the chosen circle. And that is, you're right, that is capitalism. Uh, you are as well, though. You are a capitalist because when you cook, you said you're a better cook than your wife. So if your wife says to you, honey, this, not seven minutes. Put it for 20 minutes. Are you going to listen to her? Well, it depends if she has a good point to make. I'd have to take it seriously, but I would. You, you yeah, could consider it. Who's the final decision maker of the food that you're going to cook? It's a consensus. <laughs> no, it's not. You're the chairman of the board of the food. No, I'm not. No, I'm not.
but I, but I, my wife would enjoy this because she would recognize that your need, for example, to have somebody be the chairman, that's your accommodation. I understand that's how this yeah. system works, yeah. but that's why I'm against it. I mean, I'm giving you a hard time, but the point I'm trying to make is the fact that somebody needs to make the decision. You know, one night I rented out, where were we? Were we in Yucca Valley? I rented this house and we went out and, and I said, guys, we got to come up with a code of honor. We're running the sales office. And I said, we got to come up with a code of honor on how we run this office. So I rent this place. We go out. I'm hoping we're going to finish early so we can play some games. We had foosball table, pool table, movies. We go out there and we said, we're going to come up with what's got to be written as a code. Okay. We're going through this. And all of a sudden, one guy, Philip, he says, what? We have to use what? He says, we have to use parliamentary law. 100% of people have to agree on what the code's got to be. And we're sitting, I'm like, okay, let me allow them to make this decision for themselves. So it's like a buy-in. <laughs> let me be a, this incredibly, incredible leader that brings everyone together. Do you know what time we went to sleep? I'm not going to say it. I'm going to let him tell you. What, Mario, what time did we go to sleep? Uh, six in the morning. Okay. Six in the morning. I had a movie for them to watch. Here's the point I'm trying to make. From my experience, from my experience, my small 41 years of living from Glendale Community College guy, okay? I'm a guy that's a regular guy. From my experience, someone has to be in charge to make the decisions. It's very challenging to put it a collective. Someone has to be a shot caller at the end. And typically, the most hated guy right now, everybody's watching and talking about the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. You know who's getting the most criticism right now? One guy, Michael Jordan. Why? Because he was the shot caller. And a lot of people don't like that. But that's just kind of how things work when somebody leads. So what are your thoughts? I'll, I'll, I'll let you kind of a rebuttal to that. Long time ago, we believed that in order for any society to exist and function, there had to be the guy who makes the decision. And we called him the king or the emperor or the czar or whatever. Yeah. And then a time came in human history where the mass of us got sick and tired of being the subject, having to live with the decisions made by this clown at the top, or even worse, by his you know, son or daughter who gets to be the next clown at the top. And so we said, no more monarchy, no more. We were even mad occasionally and cut their heads off, as in France with the guillotine, right? And people said, you can't do that. There has to be somebody at the top, the one who talks to God or whatever they thought uh, had to be. And the rest of us looked, or our ancestors looked at them and said, it doesn't have to be. We could live in a society where we all have some say, some input. We don't have to have one person telling everybody else what to do. And the irony, I find, I like that. I'm, I'm glad that happened. I support that. I like democracy. I support that as well, what you just said. Okay. So here comes the argument. I don't like having the king who isn't allowed in public society to find his new place inside the enterprise, where we allow him to function as the dictator who tells us whether we have the job or not, whether we will work over here or over there, who takes the fruit of our labor and decides where to sell it and what to do with the revenue. Why are we allowing kingdoms inside the enterprise when we have declared them unacceptable outside? And yeah, 
there'll be adjustments. There were adjustments when you didn't have the king. It took us a while to learn a little bit with all the imperfections of how to quote unquote govern ourselves. We will do the same inside the enterprise since it is my judgment, and I'm running out of time here, but it's my judgment that what socialism really is, is not about the government. That was 19th and 20th century socialism. 21st century socialism, it's about the enterprise. It's about democratizing the enterprise, getting rid of the kings that imagine themselves inside the enterprise. And that kind of a socialism from the bottom up will be extremely attractive to the people who are discovering that capitalism has betrayed the hopes they had felt would be satisfied by capitalism, but isn't anymore. What you just described right there was China. The last part of what we're doing right now is speed rounds. I'm going to give you a name. Tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. I'll right. give you a name. Tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Jeff Bezos. Uh, obscenely wealthy person who is making individual decisions about tens of billions of dollars that were produced by the army of employees he has who ought to have some say, as the rest of us do, about what is done with that wealth. It is obscene for one person to make those decisions that we all have to live with. Warren Buffett. Same thing. Rockefeller. Same thing. Gates. Same thing. Carnegie. Same thing. Musk. I don't know very much about Musk. Soros. Soros. Pretty much the same thing. Karl Marx. One word. Insightful. Insightful. Okay. Trump. The product of a system in deep trouble. Bernie Sanders. The same. Reagan. A grade B actor who was a puppet for the interests that needed to have a puppet at that time. Obama. A person who promised hope and change and delivered neither of them. Biden. A very sad mistake. <laughs> Ayn Rand. Not a good novelist and an even worse social theorist. Gorbachev. A sad character who tried to hold together a disintegrating uh, system. Boris Johnson. A British Trump. Lenin. A brilliant strategist and tactician, but who tried to make a transformation when the conditions to enable it to happen simply weren't there. Castro. Like Lenin. Like Lenin. By the way, who do you consider a great leader? I'm curious. Like, who to you is a great leader? Is there a name? Like, somebody would say something nice about it. You seem too upset. I want to finish it on a... Say something nice about somebody. Who do you like and you admire? Who do I like and who do I admire? Well, let's go back to Marx. I learned a lot from okay. Marx. I, would have, I was always amazed that having gone through the elite universities I went through, Harvard, Stanford, and Yale, 10 years of my life in those institutions, I should have been introduced to their work. Not, not only Marx, of course, but among many 
important thinkers of the last 2,000 years, you know, and I mean, I mean, reading the Bible and St. Augustine and Aristotle and Marx. Instead, because my teachers were afraid or caught up in the Cold War, they thought the important thing was to keep me as far away from this Marx character as they could possibly do. Uh, just a, a footnote. In those 10 years, I was never required, and I have a PhD in economics, I was never required to read one word of Marx's criticism of capitalism. That is a comment on a failed educational system. Uh, and because I find Marx's work so insightful, not only, not that Marx didn't make mistakes, of course he did, etc., etc. But as thinkers go, you could do a lot worse, and with very few would you get as much powerful insight into society as you get from him. So I'm an admirer. And the only reason I accept the label Marxist is not because I'm some blinded follower who's uncritical. It's just I want to affirm what was denied to me by an educational system that wants to present itself as the best in the world and isn't even close. Uh, Richard, well, by the way, I recommend Communist Manifesto to a lot of people. I think when people read it, they even become bigger capitalists. That's the great thing. So that's why I recommend them reading the book. But uh, Richard, what, where can people find you? I know you got a podcast going on. And if you want to tell us about your latest book before we wrap up. Right. My latest book is an answer to millions of questions that are sent to us. What is socialism? It's by a new generation in America who never learned what it was and are smart enough to realize that now that they're interested, they would like to learn what exactly is it because it's not one thing. It's, there are different interpretations. The thing has changed over the last hundred years. You need to learn it. And I wrote a short book called Understanding Socialism to meet that demand. I produce uh, with a group uh, a regular weekly radio and television program. It's called Economic Update. If you're interested in it, you can find out where the radio and the TV carry it. But every program uh, is put up on YouTube. You just go to YouTube slash Democracy at Work, and that's where you'll find it. The Democracy at Work refers to what we've finished up talking about, converting the, the enterprise into a democratic institution instead of the hierarchical top-down that it has been. Richard, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. My appreciation also for you, really. I appreciate that you do what you do, that, that you do it in the way you do, and that we can have a conversation with and without agreement. And that's what, the, what real friendship and intellectual seriousness ought to be about. I appreciate that. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid-David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.